Hi, this is Mark Wallstrom, and you are listening to Speaking of Justice, a weekly podcast here on the Legal Broadcast Network. Well, we've got a great guest today. It is attorney Gerald Schwartzbach, also known as Jerry Schwartzbach. He has written a book. It is coming out right about on the anniversary date of the acquittal of one of his most famous clients, uh, actor Robert Blake. He goes into the story of how uh, that acquittal came about, how he defended him. But this book is, you're going to find out, and you, you are really going to enjoy this interview. Uh, this book really gets into the heart of being a criminal defense attorney. Uh, it talks about uh, his personal journey of how he got from, you know, small town, young Jewish kid growing up in the 60s, uh, decided to go to law school, uh, why he became a criminal lawyer, and his professional life and the type of cases that he's worked on. So if you are fascinated with criminal law, or if all you know about is criminal law is what you see on TV, you really are going to enjoy this interview, and you are going to enjoy the book. The name of the book is Leaning on the Ark, A Personal History of Criminal Defense, and it is available here at March 2016 when we're doing this. We will have all the places you can find it on Amazon and everywhere else that you uh, get books, either e-books or hard copies. So we'll take a quick break here, and on the other side, we will be joined by attorney Jerry Schwartzbach. All right, well, we are now joined by a true uh, legend of the trial bar, uh, attorney uh, Gerald Schwartzbach. Uh, attorney Schwartzbach has just written a book, and as we talked about in our opening, you know, we've got all the uh, links to it. But uh, we want to spend a little bit of time uh, really just kind of talking about what he has learned as a defense attorney, why he went into it. Uh, criminal defense is uh, an area uh, with a great deal of uh, misunderstanding and mythology around it. We're just delighted to have him as a guest. Uh, Jerry, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Uh, well, Jerry, I'll, I'll just jump right into this because, um, you know, as I told people in the opening, uh, I've read the book. Uh, I can't recommend it highly enough. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a legal junkie anyways. And uh, But what, what really struck me is, uh, you know, you've been practicing for a while. I mean, really during one of the more interesting eras of U.S. history, really from the 70s right up until now. And at one point in our culture, you know, when we were uh, younger men, I guess, uh, the image of criminal defense attorneys as they're portrayed in TV and movies was uh, heroic. You had Atticus Finch, uh, you know, people talked about Clarence Darrow and reverential tones. And then we've seen really over the years and the decades uh, this shift where the criminal defense lawyer is, you know, I think in the general public's eyes viewed in far less heroic terms. And, you know, for someone who's devoted your professional life and your passion to defending people, uh, many who are marginalized uh, by society or, as you put in your book, are objectified. And that was a great term. I thought that uh, was, a, was a great explanation of how you fight having your clients objectified, whether they're poor, minority or celebrities. Uh, could you just take a little time about what got you into the law? I know you go into it in the book, but, you know, why criminal defense and what drove you to sacrifice really, you know, and, and, and lovingly sacrifice uh, you know, your personal and professional life to taking care of people who are, uh, uh, you know, uh, fighting for their lives? Well, as I, uh, I go into this a bit in the book, but uh, I think part of it had to do with the fact of uh, being Jewish and 
and having relatives who had been concentration camp survivors. And I think if you are a part of a, a minority who's been discriminated against, you would have a natural tendency to identify with the people who are oppressed in society, who are mm-hmm. discriminated against. That was part of it. Part of it was just the values my parents instilled in me. Um, and so that was there. That foundation was there. Um, <clears throat> I frankly went to law school to avoid uh, going to Vietnam, which I was yeah. not willing to do. I opposed the war. My real passion at the time was uh, was sports. I played basketball and baseball in high school and college. But uh, being 5'5", there didn't appear to be a professional uh, future for me. Yeah, the reality hits us uh, all. <laughs> right. So I thought I'd be a sportscaster. And uh, my older brother said, well, that's great. He said, uh, if you go to sportscasting school, the first game you announce is going to be in Vietnam. Um, and so then I found my love of the law. Um, so I did go to law school. I went to George Washington University in, in uh, D.C., and which is a very good school. But uh, I became very disillusioned very early on in my first year. It just I just had the impression, whether accurate or not, that uh, what was being emphasized, at least back then, and, and we're talking about over 45 years ago, mm-hmm was the idea of getting good grades to get the good jobs to make a lot of money. And that just didn't appeal to me. I'm, uh, uh, and I was going to quit. Yeah. Um, I stopped studying. Uh, I wasn't going to go back for my second year. But I, uh, having stopped studying, I actually failed a course. <laughs> and uh, happen, of all yeah. courses, it was constitutional law. I had been offered a high school basketball coaching and teaching job, and I was going to take it. Uh, but when I failed the course, I, being very competitive, I decided I was, and being as mature then as I am now, I decided I'd go. I was going to go back. I was going to do well and then quit. Um, <laughs> but when I went back in my second year, that's that's where the light bulb went on. Uh, that's what changed my life. Uh, because I became involved in uh, some clinical programs, perhaps the first in the country, which had me, uh, among other things, spending a great deal of time in public housing projects in D.C., representing uh, poor people, mostly African-American, in small claims court. I came from a small town in northeastern Pennsylvania where there were very few people of color. Um, and although I, I lived uh, with uh, some African-American guys in, in college, and that was, of course, due to the fact that the, the uh, discrimination uh, at that time prevented Jews and people of color from getting into uh, the overwhelming majority of fraternities. Oh, boy. Yeah. But that was a different experience than being in the public housing projects. Yeah. yeah. And when I was in the public housing projects and I got to meet these folks and and see how both the economic and the legal system treated them so unfairly mm. and got to see the see people my clients and their families um, as really decent people um, uh, you couldn't at least I couldn't uh, 
but empathize with their plight and want to fight for them. And all of a sudden, I realized that um, law could be a vehicle by which I could do something meaningful with my life. And I saw an undeniable relationship between poverty, discrimination, substance abuse, mental illness, etc., and the commission of crime. Hmm. And uh, and I saw uh, people in the housing projects who were accused of crime, and I knew they were decent people. Uh, they may have, in fact, committed crimes, but um, but they were decent people. Yeah. And I wanted to be able to help them, and and uh, so that just set my life on a completely different course, and yeah. uh, for which I'm forever grateful. Yeah, and it, it, it's it's interesting when you talk to people who get into certain areas of law. I mean, everybody's got a different story, but there's certain similarities where they all kind of have that road to Damascus moment where they realize they want to spend their life uh, helping people who are horribly disenfranchised and at an enormous disadvantage when they are in the legal system or the justice system. And, uh, you know, it, it really is fascinating to hear that. I mean, it really sounds like you had the same experience. It was it was an amazing experience. Um, it was obviously a life transforming experience, and uh, my family was in the clothing business. And I remember my, my dad had died when I was fourteen, but I remember coming home from law school one time and telling my mother, you know, nothing personal, mom, but I've got to do something more with my life than make pants. Yeah. Um, and helping people. It's just enormously rewarding. Yeah. It's just enormously. I mean, criminal defense work isn't the only way to do it, obviously. Uh, and it's not the only way to do it as a lawyer. But it is a way to do it. Yeah. And, and, and one of the things we'll get into a, a little bit later in the interview, I want to kind of talk about, you know, the contrast between then and now, because it's a lot of the same things we still hear uh, today. But first, I want to kind of talk about, I mean, you talk about working with people in the projects and you've, and anybody who reads the book or knows your career, uh, would become familiar with the fact that you've done a lot of work for very little money for people who could not have afforded someone with your talents. And, uh, but at the same time, you've also represented, uh, obviously most notably, you know, Robert Blake, um, and one of the things that I found in reading the book and the book, uh, is called Leaning on the Ark. And I, I want you to explain where you came up with that title in just a minute. But uh, Robert Blake, uh, you know, we, we saw one of those big sort of celebrity entertainment press type cases uh, where, you know, you have a tremendous amount of reporting that is sensationalized. And, you know, I, I followed the trial, but until I read your book and read the particulars on it, you don't realize how incredibly inaccurate the reporting is how it uh, paints a narrative uh, about, uh, well, this is a guy who's just hired a sharp lawyer to get him off murder, and this is just another OJ, or this is just another celebrity who's murdered someone, and their money's going to buy them freedom. Um, How do you handle that as a lawyer when you know the facts in the public are being twisted to fit a certain narrative, and you're defending somebody? You know, I mean, the other stuff that you do tends to be under the radar, and then all of a sudden you get this big glaring public public case. I mean, what, tell tell us about the difference between those. Um, for me, there there is no difference. I mean, there 
substantively, there is no difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as you, as you know, I was not Robert's first lawyer. Yeah. Um, uh, he had had three or four lawyers before me. Um, he had a reputation of being a very difficult person as an actor and an impossible person as a client. Um, that was at least what was out there. Yeah. Um, I was not, although I have handled some cases that had received significant uh, publicity, but they were some time ago uh, in, in terms of, it was, I mean, most notably Stephen Bingham. Yeah. Um, but that was in 1986. I tried that mm-hmm. Steve's case, and although it was front page of the New York Times and, uh, you know, the lead story on national news, that was before uh, social media right. and the Internet, et cetera. But uh, I recall when I went down after uh, Robert retained me, and I, I, I did not, I did not expect that I was going to be living down in Los Angeles. I'm in, I'm based in the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, but when I saw that the um, the case was needed a great deal of work. Uh, and that I was going to have to be down there. I just went down there, and uh, frankly, my fee didn't change. Uh, I lived down there for over a year. So even in the high-profile cases, uh, I didn't particularly make money um, because my commitment's the same to every client, whether it's the client's charged with a misdemeanor or murder. the, The commitment is complete. But one of the things I said to myself to answer your question, uh, I knew there was going to be a great deal of publicity. Uh, I frankly couldn't have conceived of how much there was once I got to L.A. Because it was wall to wall. But I made uh, some promises to myself, uh, commitments, in which were to, the, the, the first one to, Get, obtain Robert's acquittal, but also to be the same person and same lawyer at the end of the trial as I was at the beginning, to not get caught up into in the publicity. Yeah. And uh, and I I said to myself um, that you know I was asked to represent him because of who I was as a person and who I was as a lawyer. And I wasn't going to change any of that. And I I did not talk to the media unless the prosecution talked to the media. And once the trial started, I did not talk to the media. Hmm. And Robert, when I first got involved in his case, was glued to the television and all of the, the news reports, et cetera, related to his case. Yeah. And... I told him that, that, and it took some effort to convince him that the trial wasn't going to occur in that box sitting on his shelf. Right. It was going to occur in a courtroom. And one of the things that uh, perhaps the most undervalued part of a criminal trial is jury selection. Hmm. Uh because it doesn't matter what the law is or the evidence if you don't have a jury that's willing to listen to it and follow it. Uh, and so we had 
written juror questionnaires, something like 70 to 80 percent of the people who filled them out thought Robert was guilty. So the first part about dealing with that is to try to filter out the people who are prejudiced and to try to get people who are... I generally want as an intelligent a jury as I can get. Mm -hmm. Um, I knew that despite the fact that the public didn't appreciate this, I knew that a critical part of the defense had to do with scientific testimony, gunshot residue testimony, that is yeah. uh, residue that's, that, that's emitted from a gun when you fired it, and whether there was any of it on Robert's hands, etc. It's very detailed scientific testimony. I needed a jury that was going to be able to listen to that testimony. Right. And uh, so to answer your question, how do you deal with all that media stuff? You try to get a jury that commits to and you believe is sincere in that commitment to try the case based solely on the evidence that's presented in the courtroom and not based upon anything outside of the courtroom and then to follow the law. Yeah. And, and we were successful in getting that kind of a jury. Um, you know, when people ask you, when's the trial going to start? They usually mean when's opening statement. Yeah. They just don't realize that. <laughs> if you get a bad jury... Trial's over. <laughs> uh, you know, trial's over before you give your opening statement. Right, right. Well, you know, it's, it's fascinating because, you know, you, you touched on something, uh, which is you know, social media and, and how that has changed. And then, you know, cable news, uh, you know, they have entire cable programs tied to turning people into amateur detectives and forensic experts and, you know, all of these different things and, and you know, digging up evidence and sharing of information on social media and TMZ. But, you know, uh, you also pointed out something in, in your earlier question about when you were working, uh, you know, in the projects in Washington, D.C. And it, it kind of addresses millennials and young lawyers, because I presume, you know, one of the reasons you wrote this uh, is, you know, a, a desire to share basic common truths that cut through a generation and go to the core of the law. You know, I mean, the fact you just pointed out, I mean, jury selection is everything and knowing what kind of jury to pick, what type of people to get. So, you know, as we continue to hear that law schools are pouring out a glut of lawyers and we hear people, you know, saying, well, there's no work for young lawyers. Uh, but then we also know that the substantial majority of criminal defendants are, are really unable to obtain competent counsel and afford uh, a competent legal uh, defense. So we got we have a, a disconnect between supply and demand, and we have all these young people who are so in debt that they have to just, like you were saying, you have to, you know, they, they make that cynical decision or even, you know, a self-interested decision because they've got so much debt that they have to take on a career that's profitable as opposed to one that maybe is more fulfilling. Um, it, it, with the millennial generation and young lawyers, uh, how, how do you get them involved in criminal defense work? Where, where, what type of opportunities are there out there to kind of light that fire for them? I mean, what, what would you suggest? Well, in my view, if your priority is money, uh, then you shouldn't go into criminal defense work. Yeah. Um, because, uh, 
you're likely not going to make nearly as much money as you could practicing other areas of law. Hmm. And you're probably not going to be a very good lawyer um, unless you go through some transformation, the kind that I went through in law school. Uh, the, the, I think the answer, at least from my perspective, the answer to your question um, has a broader um, scope to it, which because I think the answer to that, the question you asked, and I'll do the best I can to try to answer it, also has to do with the perception, the change in the perception of criminal defense lawyers. Okay. It also has to do with the uh, the fact that our prisons are overflowing. Mm-hmm. We make more and more conduct illegal. We make sentences longer and longer. And we do relatively little to intelligently attempt to reduce uh, the crime rate. Um, The fact of the matter is that criminal defense, although since the Gideon decision, everyone's got a right to a lawyer. Mm Mm-hmm. If they can't afford one, one will be appointed for them. But lawyers are no different than whether they're plumbers or doctors or anybody else. They're good ones and they're bad ones. Same is true with judges. You know, I've said, you know, I've been in front of many superb judges, but I've also been in front of a lot of very bad judges. Mm -hmm. I've told people putting a black robe on a jackass doesn't get you a judge, (laughs) a well-dressed jackass. Yeah. Um, and some people think that, uh, uh, you know, if you have a public defender, you don't have a lawyer. And if you pay money to a lawyer, then you have a good lawyer. Yeah. Um, but there are many public defenders who are superb lawyers, and there are many bad lawyers in private practice, and giving a bad lawyer your money doesn't make him or she uh, a good lawyer, just a bad lawyer with your money. Yeah. Um, but as a society... We simply don't value criminal defense work. Mm. Um, I was disappointed yesterday, even when uh, President Obama was nominating uh, uh, Judge... um, Oh, I know. I'm I'm drawing a blank, too. (laughs) Yeah, uh, Merrick uh, Garland. Garland, yes. Judge Garland to the Supreme Court. He's obviously a very, very bright man and uh, but in describing him you know he has a prosecutor he, he has a big firm background you know Harvard background big firm background Arnold and Porter and then he was a prosecutor online prosecutor then in the Justice Department he headed up the investigation and prosecution of the Oklahoma City case etc yeah. and when the president was talking about um, his work there which is to be respected uh, he said that when people were offering him evidence, he didn't necessarily accept it. He wanted to get he wanted to get court orders because he didn't want anyone to get off on a legal technicality. And and then and the president went on. Now I would have that 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 comment was probably lost on many people. Yeah. It wasn't lost on me. Yeah. Now what he could have said, and I wish he would have said, is. Um, that Judge Garland, as a prosecutor, 
wanted to ensure that any person who was being investigated and and or prosecuted, um, their their constitutional rights were going to be respected. Yeah. And as a, a consequence of that, should they be convicted, the convictions would be protected from reversal on appeal. Mm. But instead of referring to honoring and respecting constitutional rights, the president said he didn't want them somebody getting off on a legal technicality. Well, the president knows better. Yeah, I mean, he knows better, and th- those aren't legal technicalities. But if you talk like that, right, then you're feeding into this bias. Mm-hmm. You're feeding into this belief that constitutional rights really don't mean anything in the criminal justice context. Right. And uh, you feed into the perception of criminal defense lawyers uh, as people who are simply trying to get people off. Right. As opposed to people who, for example, in my view, every time I fight for the constitutional rights of my clients, I'm fighting for your constitutional rights. Yep. I'm fighting for everyone's constitutional rights. And I know it's not popular, mm-hmm. but if the prosecution can get away with with convicting someone without proving guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, and the person actually committed the crime, yeah. there's nothing to prevent them from convicting someone who's factually innocent. And indeed, over... 1,700 people in, have been wrongly convicted in this country, have been exonerated. There are, I'm sure there are far more who have yeah. been wrongly convicted. 156 of them off of death row. Yeah, That's what happens when you don't respect what the president referred to as technicalities. They are constitutional rights that are important for all of us. Rush Limbaugh didn't know about the Fourth Amendment or probably didn't value it until he got busted. Right, exactly. And then all of a sudden it had <laughs> meaning to him. Criminal defense lawyers fight for everybody. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and, and it's, it's just it's, a misperception. And what happens is that politicians feed into people's lack of information or ignorance, mm-hmm. their, their biases and prejudices, and their, and their understandable fear of crime. Right. And so politicians run on those kinds of platform. They they act like tough guys, whether they're men or women. Mm-hmm. They they you know. And then and then that's how we make more conduct illegal. That's why we make sentences longer. That's why we do virtually nothing to rehabilitate people. Yeah. And we never ever put sub- substantial or significant or or sufficient funds into the sources of crime. And if you talk about the, the root sources of crime, you're perceived as being, uh, you know, a bleeding heart liberal. Yeah, I've been yeah. practicing, I've been involved in the criminal justice system for almost 50 years. You know, I have no dog in this fight. Yeah. <laughs> okay? I, I'm towards the end of my career. Right. I'm just telling you, I know. I've been on the inside of the belly of the beast. Hmm. And unless you put money into trying to provide proper education for poor people, proper health care, you really intervene when many people who commit crimes themselves were victimized when they were when they were very young. Yes. 
Many of them are born to women who were on drugs and and or um, or were alcoholic at the time they were carrying their their babies, and yep. and so there are, there are neurological deficits. I mean, if 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 we don't address the root causes of crime. Mm-hmm. You're never going to solve the crime problem. Yeah. But see, that takes time. Yeah. And Americans want instantaneous results. That's just not reality. Yeah, yeah. And that, and that kind of goes back to that question. And I'll, I'll give you kind of a two-part uh, question here as we're going to I just, you know, I really appreciate you taking this much time because, I mean, this is a message that most people just don't hear anymore. Uh, but when we look at, you know, for the first time in my career, I started in 1980 uh, and, and working in and around the legal system and consulting, but have always been intrigued with it. And, you know, over that 30-year period, we've seen now where all of a sudden there's this awakening, both between conservatives and liberals, that this incarceration push, and you know, people are now talking about the effects of the 1994 crime bill and mandatory sentencing, and that we now have a massive private prison industry that has to be fed. You know, here in Arizona, if we don't have 100% occupancy in these prisons, the state has to write a check to the prison company. So, I mean, you tell me what that does for prosecutors. I mean, they're, they're, they're incentivized to make sure that they're putting people in these warehouses that are, you know, staffed by minimum wage guards. So when you have all these people in prison, and all of a sudden, you know, we're hearing in a presidential campaign, we're hearing from the Oval Office, this idea that people are beginning to realize that we've created over 20 years this this systematic mass incarceration. Uh, it took 20 years for us to get here. Do you, do you feel do you feel any optimism at this point that you know people are at least aware of it? And and what are the steps that you would uh, take to remedy it as a as a lawyer and as a citizen? Well, you mentioned earlier that in my book I. Um I essentially say that my major criticism of the criminal justice system is its tendency to objectify human beings. Right. And what I mean by that is it's much easier to throw out a piece of garbage than it is mm-hmm. to incarcerate or execute a human being. Yeah. And and criminal defense lawyers have a perspective that uh, no one else in the criminal justice system can have. Yeah. Because we really get to know if if you're a dedicated criminal defense lawyer, not all criminal defense lawyers are, yeah. but if you are, you really get to know your clients as a human being. Right. If society viewed these people as human beings with a, with a life history, mm-hmm. uh, with families, they would they would value the protection of the the defendant's constitutional rights. Right. If they, you know, not all terrible acts are committed by terrible people. Right. And and not all people who are, quote, terrible have to stay terrible. Mm-hmm. You know, I write in my book one, one story of a, of a fellow who spent almost 19 years in prison for a double murder he had absolutely nothing to do with. Yeah. And when I first met him, he was a racist and anti-Semite, uh, but I was representing someone who had been his co-defendant, uh, and the mm-hmm. fellow I'm talking about who was wrongly convicted, his name was Buddy, Buddy Nickerson. Yeah, okay. And I went to pr- I went to the prison to see Buddy because I thought by 
proving his innocence, I could help my client. Mm-hmm. And Buddy um, didn't like my client. They knew each other. They had never liked each other. And my client actually was good for the murder. I was My goal was to try to save his life, which yeah. fortunately I was ultimately able to do. But and then I, uh, but when I first went to see Buddy in prison, uh, he was a very big man. When he was arrested, he weighed 425 pounds. <laughs> um, and I went to see him. Uh, he wasn't expecting me. Uh, he just knew he had a visit. Yeah, he had already lost all of his appeals. So he was looking to die in prison for crimes he hadn't committed. And then... There's me. I'm representing Murray, who he hated and who he knew was good for the murder, and uh, but that Buddy would die in prison for the, for murders he didn't do. Mm. And then I was obviously Jewish. My last name is Schwartzbeck. Yeah. Uh, I'm not Irish. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 so he was for 45 minutes an hour. He was really really nasty to me. And Buddy also had a lot of tattoos, and he was sitting across the table for me with his, with his fist underneath his chin and his large forearm facing me, and that whole forearm was a huge swastika. Hmm. And I said to him, you know, I, I, I stayed and took his BS for a period of time, and I finally said to him, look, man, if you want, I'll leave. But... Uh, if I leave, I can make you one promise. And he said, oh, yeah, what's that? And I said, well, I promise you that if I leave now, so does your last chance of ever leaving this place in anything but a box. Yeah. Pregnant pause. I could see him thinking, eh, Jewish, Jewish. I might be able to get by this. <laughs> um, and then as it turned out, he had a great sense of humor. We spent a good deal of time talking. He agreed to cooperate. Um, and as I was leaving, I said to him, look, man, I don't know if there's anything I can do that's going to ever help get you out. But if I, if I ever do, you got to do something about that swastika. Now, many years later, because mm-hmm. I represented Murray for 10 years, um, but I, I, through two trials, uh, during which we found out that, and, and had, judicial findings that the lead detectives had committed perjury and suppressed evidence. They, of course, were never prosecuted or disciplined. Um, I, after Murray and Buddy waived conflict of interest, when Murray's case was over with, I began to represent Buddy for free. And I represented him for free for eight years through state and federal court. And after we had finished um, the evidentiary hearing in federal court, and while we were waiting many months for the judge's written opinion, Buddy sent me a letter in which he thanked me, et cetera, et cetera. But he said, uh, I mean, I have the words verbatim, but uh, you showed me uh, or you taught me to see people for who they are and not what they are. Yeah. And I will get the tattoo removed. And when he got out, he got every racist and anti-Semitic tattoo removed from his body and awesome. he did it without anesthesia because he thought he deserved to experience pain for having been that kind of person. So going back to what I said before is Buddy was no sweetheart. Yeah. In fact, I had said to him after he got out, it's a good thing you weren't charged of being an asshole because you had died in prison. <laughs> but 
Um, but he he was a different person when he got out. Yeah. Um, and, and so pe- even people who can he hadn't committed this crime. He had done other crimes, mm-hmm. and he wasn't a particularly good guy when I first met him. But he's a real good guy now. Yeah. He's not the same people. So, so there has to be this realization. We can't just assume that even if a person has done bad things, that, that they can't be redeemed, right. that they can't turn their lives around. So if you, if you, if you see people as human beings, um, you see the potential for redemption. But from the outside, if you just see them as bad guys... Or if you see them, and, and, and they're not even people, right. um, then that, there is no possibility of that. Yeah. And uh, anyway, so I think that, that um, what, we, what we need to do as a society is have a much more sincere appreciation of the Constitution. Right. And the protection of constitutional rights for everyone, mm-hmm. regardless of what crime they're charged with. Because unless you're on the inside of a case, even if you're a lawyer, you don't know the case. Right. I mean, I, I see lawyers going on national television or radio and talking about expressing opinions about you know, high-profile cases that are going on. And they are likely, I can only speak from my own experiences and cases that I've done, they're almost always wrong yeah. because they don't know the case. They don't know the evidence. They don't know what the strategy is. They, they just don't know. But they're able to promote themselves mm-hmm. and perhaps build their, at least build their ego, if not their practices, or build a media career. Yeah. But that's not what I'm about. Yeah. I mean, I'm just, you know, I'm not trying to... And this might sound immodest, but it's just it's just not who I am. And and Robert Blake re- hired me, I'm convinced, because he not only thought that I was a good lawyer, but he trusted me as a human being. Yeah. And, and I I recently did an interview for a, a, a television program that's going to I guess air in June, and I was told by one of the producers that they had interviewed one or more jurors from the Blake trial. And they said they trusted me. Hmm. Um, I, I'm not really any different in trial than I am in my personal life. I mean, I'm, you know, my personal life. Yeah. And, you know, my wife recently said, oh, you're a dope. I said, don't tell anybody. <laughs> you, know? Um, you know, I have, I, yeah. in, in one sense, I'm, I'm, I'm very different as a lawyer than I am in my personal life because i become focused like a laser yeah right. i paid enormous attention to detail as a lawyer but as a person i i, I don't communicate I, I don't try to be something i'm not yeah um and, and jury and juries can see that i mean they really do i mean it, particularly if they're in that room with you and they're seeing it as i've always told people i said you know uh and and i've i've the, the, the stress that you put on, or the emphasis, I should say, on the importance of knowing the Constitution is because it really is your, it's, it's not technicalities that people are using. It's the document that is the foundation of our freedom that we are using to defend people. 
And those aren't technicalities. That's a, you know, that's the, the basis for our nation and for the personal freedom that we enjoy. When you, when you look at these things, uh, you know, it's, it, you realize people, every, I always tell people, I said, everybody thinks, you know, they have an opinion about lawyers until it's their time in court. And then they want the best lawyer, they want the best advocate, they want a real person that's representing them and is going to fight for them before they're deprived of money or their life or their freedom. And, you know, it, being able to convey that, and, and it's one of the things I think it's great about the book, and, you know, I, I appreciate you being so generous with your time today, I really do, because this is a message that people need to hear, which is, you know, and that was the thing I really latched on with the, with the book, Jerry, is that this sense that People are objectified by the system, you know. That that's that's a kid from the from the the ghetto. This guy is just a, a supremacist. This person, you know, is an addict. Uh, this is a white collar criminal. You know, this is a celebrity who's getting away with murder. You know, but when you are able to, in your way, by being so authentic, get in front of a jury of of our peers, which is I always tell people, I said it's the last line of defense against tyranny are the 12 people in those boxes, you know, sitting there listening to the truth with an advocate, you know, fighting for their life. That's, to me, you know, people talk about democracy. That's the purest form of freedom we have. And uh, yeah. it really is. Well, the, the, you know, the presumption of innocence is a fiction uh, unless you have uh, lawyers or judges who are going to turn that into a reality in a courtroom. Yeah. Because the fact of the matter is whenever people it's human nature when you hear about some crime being committed uh people's first reaction isn't oh that poor person he's on being unfairly prosecuted yeah uh folks just presume people guilty that's that's just a reality yeah. another reality is that many many prospective jurors lie mm-hmm. in the courtroom mm-hmm. and and oftentimes judges bear responsibility for that because uh the courtroom is a very intimidated place. Right. People are reluctant to acknowledge prejudices or biases in a public forum. They they want to they want to uh, they want the judge to think well of them. Hmm. And it's important for and it's really the judge that controls that atmosphere. Yeah. Uh, it's important for judges, and if and whether judges. And if judges don't do it, then the lawyers need to do it. And that is to tell people there are no right or wrong answers. Right. Whatever is the truth for you is the right answer. We all have biases. Hmm. We, you know, it may be that somebody could be very fair in one kind of trial, but not fair in another kind of trial. Yeah. But we need to we need to know that. And um, so so jury selection is indeed really really critical in that in that process well uh jerry uh you know we, we've, we've chewed up a good portion of your morning uh <laughs> and i'll tell you i i could go on for hours with this but uh you know i'm, I'm going to let you go here in a minute but i, I really want to first uh, thank you i want to encourage our listeners uh to uh, go out and find the book we will have links to it uh you know links to uh uh, Jerry's law firm. I mean, you know, we will make it impossible for you to not find this book uh, if you listen to this. So <laughs> that's our first objective. But also, I, I want to kind of close with what's on the back page of the of the book, and I think it's a great uh, epilogue. You know, Robert Blake uh, said it after his acquittal, 
Uh, just quoting, he said, uh, speaking of you, he said, he will never be rich and he will never be famous, but by God, he can save lives and that will keep him warm on any cold night in his life. Uh, th- that's a great epilogue, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It was a wonderful thing for Robert to say. Uh, and and just uh, before he finished, you had earlier asked about the title of the book. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, in Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, he said, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. So leaning on the arc is meant to reflect my efforts to help in, in, in that fight. Awesome. Um, and the reason for the book is simply to try to educate people about the criminal justice system, um, the reality of being a criminal defense lawyer, the value of uh, of doing criminal defense work, and how uh, we really protect everyone when we do our our jobs within the system, and also to let folks have a window into what it's like personally, mm-hmm. uh, the, to, the sacrifices you have to make, to be a dedicated criminal defense lawyer, and the and the price your family pays for it as well, it it's uh, it's not for the fainted faint heart. Yeah. But it's for people who are really committed to doing justice or trying to achieve justice, and and who want to do something extremely meaningful with their life. Jerry, uh, again, thank you for your time. Uh, I, we have a lot of, uh, you know, here on the broadcast network, we have our, our weekly podcast, but we always have uh, uh, cases that come up, and uh, we'd love to have you back on again sometime. And, uh, you know, just appreciate you taking the time. And, again, we encourage people to read the book. It's a labor of love, but, uh, uh, you know, it's something, uh, lawyer or non-lawyer, you're going to enjoy it, and we encourage you to read it. Uh, Jerry, thank you again. Thank you very much. All right, certainly a little bit longer interview than we usually do, but I was not going to uh, cut short our time uh, when somebody of the stature and experience of Jerry Schwartzbach, you know, gives us that sort of insight and passion and understanding into the criminal uh, defense community, why he became a criminal defense attorney, uh, the issues going on in the justice system. Great interview. I just encourage you to share it. Uh, as we said in the opening, we will have links to this book. Uh, the book, again, is Leaning on the Ark, A Personal History of Criminal Defense by Gerald Schwartzbach. Just a great interview, a great guest. Uh, we've got more great guests coming up this month, and we encourage you to uh, suggest guests. Uh, you know, These are uh, timeless interviews that we will keep up, make available to people, and we hope you enjoyed it. This is Mark Wallstrom. We will talk to you again next week here on Speaking of Justice. Thanks. Have a great week.